Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for providing my every need and giving me the strength to make it through. I pray that I listen for your voice today and cast all my worries on you. Help me to see others through your eyes and notice the opportunities you have for me. Let me love others as you do, forgive and let be. Please take away the anxiety and stress that I may trust and rely on you and rest. In every moment of every day, may I open my heart to you and pray, asking you not only to meet my needs, but how I'll serve as the Spirit intercedes. Thank you for being with me, even in my darkest days, and forgiving me for wronging you in so many ways. Help me to pray, for better or worse, but most importantly, to always pray first. Well, good morning. It is good to have you here. Those of you here in Bellingham, those of you joining us online with the live stream, glad that you're with us today. Those of you in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God and also in our Skagit, down south in Skagit at the campus there, good to have you here. As we continue in this series, Pray First, and we have this tagline, Inspiring a Life of Prayer. And our desire has always been in this series and in this emphasis at our church that it would not just be about information, about information about what prayer is or about why we should pray. There would be some of that, but it wouldn't just be about information and that this wouldn't just be about instruction on how to pray. There might be some of that as well. But we want it to be an inspiration for a life of prayer so that it's not just about this is what we ought to do, this is what we should do, but we understand it as this beautiful gift of this is what we get to do. This is an incredible privilege to connect with our loving Heavenly Father who loves us more than we could ever even imagine and to be able to have that. And in doing so, we wanted to look at the life of different prayers throughout Scripture, men and women, Old and New Testament, who had prayed, and we could learn from their prayer life and be inspired in our own prayer life. And we've been looking at Scripture, and we'll do so again today and next week as we conclude the series. But I want to tell you about something that I encountered, an experience that I had that inspired me in my prayer life, that it was not scriptural. And it came from, uh, this inspiration came from the most unlikely place, and it happened about five or six weeks ago. I was out for a run, out uh, just out away from my house, on a road that literally over the last 10 or 15 years, I've run hundreds and hundreds of times. And part of this road has a little place where it dips down and then dips back up. It's a, kind of a little, a, little, a little dip. In the south, we'd call it a holler. And down at the bottom there is, is a creek. In fact, it's 10 Mile Creek. I've got a picture of this specific spot that I'm talking about. This is 10 Mile Creek. It is a creek, and it is 10 miles long. Thus the name. Whoever named this was on it. So... This is Ten Mile Creek. This is where it dips down. And you'll see in the background that there are some evergreens, you know, some Douglas firs, there's some birch trees, there's, there's some um, uh, alder trees and different things as well as some, some scrub brush around and such. On the south side of this part of Ten Mile Creek, there's a stand of, of cottonwood trees. And, and they're big cottonwood trees. In fact, I've got a picture of one of them. This is one of the cottonwood trees. It's just on the south side of that portion of Ten Mile Creek. And it's hard to get a, 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 a dimensions and scale. Uh, so let me explain to you how big this tree is. I, I went out yesterday with a tape measure to measure the circumference of this tree. The circumference of this cottonwood tree is 11 feet around. Now, some of you say that, that I still don't, I, I didn't do geometry or whatever. I, and, 
Let me explain it this way. If I wanted to be a tree hugger and hug this tree, I would have to do it like this. Because my wingspan is about six feet, and this tree is 11 feet around. So it's a very large tree. Get, get the pr- picture of this tree. Now, in this little portion of Tin Mile Creek, in this little holler, there is a rodent, also known as a beaver, that has decided this is a good place to set up a bachelor pad or a cul-de-sac for a family. So this beaver has decided to build a dam across Tin Mile Creek to have a little beaver pond where he and, he and his future bride or his family can, can dwell. What I found interesting this day as I was running, and I'd run this many, many times, is that I observed something that this beaver, in starting this dam, decided to not go with one of the smaller trees, not to go with the Douglas fir, not go with the alder, not go with the birch, but to start with this tree. And I got a picture of it with a base. You can kind of see he started gnawing away on it. In fact, I've got a close-up of this. This is what he's been working on. Night after night after night. This has been going on for weeks, possibly months. And I saw that, and I thought, wow, you go, beaver. I mean, that, that's, the, he gives new meaning to the phrase eager beaver. I mean, he's going for the biggest tree in the neighborhood to start this. Here was my inspiration on this. I thought this. Too often... I pray small prayers, and I give up way too soon. Too often, I'm chewing on the little alder sapling, and if it doesn't fall within a couple of days, I give up, I stop praying, or I spiritualize and say, it must not have been God's will. But this beaver says, no, I'm going for the big one, and I'm going to continue on, and I don't care how long it takes, this is the one I'm going to go after. See, the size of our God determines the size of our prayers, and the intensity and the need of our prayer request will determine how long we'll pray, and I want to become more like the beaver at Ten Mile Creek in my prayer life. Now, instead of just talking about animal stories and rodents in, in a creek, there ought to be a, a, a Bible verse, right? Any good pastor would proof text this. All right, so in Romans chapter 12, it says this, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. The prayer that we are going to look at today embodies this verse. The prayer that we're going to look at understood affliction, understood the need for hope, and remained faithful in prayer. I mentioned last week who it was going to be. This week we're going to be looking at the prayer Daniel. Now, some of you are familiar with Daniel. You may be familiar with his life. You may be familiar with the book of Daniel. Some of you may be familiar with some of the visions that he had that are a little bit hard to interpret. If you've ever been a part of a, a prophecy seminar, an end time study or whatever, no doubt they've talked about Daniel and the, the 70 weeks or the 77s and the horns of the goat and the bull and the man and all that. And some of you are going, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Listen, most of the people that teach about it don't have a clue what they're talking about either. It doesn't matter. It's in there. And some of you say, well, I don't know about that part, but maybe you remember the dreams that he interpreted, the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had. There was one of a very large statue and there was another one of a very large tree that actually got cut down but had nothing to do with the cottonwood of Tin Mile Creek. You say, well, I don't know about those, but maybe you remember the one about this man's hand that began to write on the walls where we get our phrase, the handwriting was on the wall that comes out of the book of Daniel. You might be familiar with that story. And even if you don't know any of those stories, my guess is the vast majority of you have heard the seminal story of Daniel. Daniel in the... See, you know that story, and if you were raised in Sunday school like I was, you may remember it on the old flannel graph. There it is. There's Daniel with the lions and the angel that saves him. Any of you remember that on the felt board? Okay, that's what we were raised with. Now, today, what I want to look at is Daniel's life, but I don't want to look just specifically at these stories. We will refer to them, but I want us to look at Daniel's life, and I want us to see Daniel with a consistent life of prayer. 
that Daniel has this consistent life of prayer. And when I say consistent, we're going to look at 65 to 70 years of his life, and we're going to touch down on three different uh, eras, three different incidents that took place. And when we talk about Daniel's life, we got to understand that Daniel had some ups in life and he had some downs in life. Daniel understood what it meant to have loss and disappointment. He understood injustice. He understood hardships and heartbreak. You know, one of the... um, One of the downsides about living in a fallen world, and there's many of them, but one of the downsides about living in a fallen world is that someone can make a decision, can have some action, and it can negatively impact people that had nothing to do with that decision or that action. That someone can make a decision, someone can do something, and the the negative ripple effects can impact innocent people affect their lives. Someone might even say ruin their lives. Case in point, someone makes a decision to drink too much and get behind the wheel of a car. Their decision could ruin a life of an individual, could destroy a family, could kill innocent lives because of their decision. Some of you have experienced this in life where maybe you had this wonderful home in this childhood, but your mom in this midlife crisis decided she had to find herself and found this man and it destroyed your home. And you were never the same. Or or maybe it was a dad who was addicted to gambling or pornography. Or maybe it was a spouse that had some character flaws and could never hold a job. And it impacted you. Some of you know what this is like. Daniel understood this. Daniel understood about someone's decision that not only impacted his life, it completely altered the entire trajectory of his life. And you might even say it completely ruined his future. It happened this way. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar became the king and the ruler of Babylon. His decision at that point was to overthrow Jerusalem, to seize Jerusalem, and to sack it, which he did. In so doing, he goes into the temple. He removes all of these these sacred vessels from the temple, takes them off to Babylon. All these things that had been holy, set apart to God, he takes them off to Babylon. It wasn't just enough to seize the city and to take the vessels from Jerusalem. He wanted something else, and this is where we pick up in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So you begin to see the kind of guys he's wanting to bring in. Daniel is one of these. And most scholars would believe, give or take a year, that at this point, Daniel is probably 15 years old. Think sophomore in high school, still in his parents' home. And you see the kind of men that he's looking for. You remember the guy in school. He was athletic. He was part of the National Honor Society. He was a class president. He was the homecoming king. He got SAT scores off the charts. He got offers to scholarships and all kinds of areas. He hated him. That was the kind of guy he was looking for. These guys that are so smart, that are so quick. And then he says, put them in an indoctrination program to assimilate them. It's a three-year program. We're going to remove them from their families. We're going to remove them from their land. We're going to put them not only in a foreign land, but teach them a foreign language, not just like, oh, I took three years of Spanish in high school. No, this is full immersion. You will learn our language. You're not going to speak your language anymore. 
Not only that, but you're going to be schooled in all of our literature. You're going to understand our culture. You're going to know our customs. We're going to do all of this for three years, and then you're going to go into the service of the king. Now, it begins to get specific about some. There were many, but some that were brought from Jerusalem. Verse 6 says this. Among those were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, we have talked about, and there's a, there's a chance, good chance, these guys may have been friends and may have grown up together. We don't know that for a fact. But as we've talked about many, many times, names in the Bible hold significant importance. And what's interesting about these four names, it's the suffix of their name that is so important. Dan-I-L and Mishael, Hanani-Yah and Azariah. L. L was short for Elohim, the name for God. Yah was short for Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, this, this name of the Lord. And so their names all point to the Lord their God. And it's more than just a, a shout out to the Lord their God. There's a meaning behind them. Daniel means El, you know, Elohim, God is my judge. Hananiah, Yah, Yahweh, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is like God, Azariah, the Lord, Yahweh, has helped. All of these guys were named by their parents in such a way that every time they heard their name, it would be pointing them to, this is who the Lord your God is. And this is a character trait about him. Now remember, these guys are brought up in Jewish families, and now they're taken away from their families. They were brought up as young Jewish men who would daily, every morning and every night, repeat the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one, a monotheistic society. There is one God. Now they're brought into this Babylonian area where it's a polytheistic culture where they have gods for everything, gods for thunder, gods for spring, gods for the sun, gods for the harvest, God for winter, God for wind, God for wheat. They have gods for everything. These guys have been raised with the Ten Commandments. You'll have no other God before you. And now they're coming to this culture where gods are always set before them. They were raised to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. They're brought into a nation that does not observe the Sabbath, let alone the Sabbath. They had been following that from sundown on Friday night till sundown on Saturday their whole lives. They are not acknowledging the Sabbath, nor the Passover, nor any of the other celebrations or festivals that they had been commanded to follow. In addition to that, these guys had followed the Levitical laws in the dietary areas of things that were clean and things that were unclean, things that they could eat, things they couldn't eat, what was kosher and what was not kosher, and now they're thrown and put before them is this entire menu of unkosher, unclean things, and they're supposed to eat them. See, the whole goal with this was to take these good, fine Jewish young men and indoctrinate them, transition them, and make them Babylonian leaders, take them out of their land, try to move them away from their loyalty to their country, to their family, to their God, to their religion, even change their identity. And one of the ways they attempted to do that was with these names that pointed to the Lord their God. Verse 6 and 7. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To which some of you are going, Okay, I know this story. To Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. They give them new names, and if we had time, we could go into all these names and what they mean and what gods they point to. Little side note, 
any of you raised in church grow up saying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Anybody at all? Okay, yeah, some, look, do that again. I just want it because it's going to make me feel better. All right, my whole life, every Sunday school talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My vacation Bible school story teacher told us about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our children's musical director had us singing about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My dad was a pastor, and he preached about Abednego. I just thought it was our church. I thought my dad had a dyslexic moment. It's not Abednego. Could none of our teachers read? It's Abednego. Okay, I just had to get that off my chest. I, I feel much better. Right, it has nothing to do with the sermon, but I'm better. So we could go into all those names. We won't. Daniel, however, is our guy. And I want us to focus on his name. His name, Daniel, meant God is my judge. That God is my judge, Danny L. But he's given a new name, and the name is Belteshazzar, which Bel protects his life. Bel was one of the Babylonian gods. Now, I'm going to say this really quickly. In about 15 minutes, we are going to have a quiz. This is the answer to the quiz. I'm telling you in advance, there will be a quiz. There will be two questions. These answers are right here. I'm giving you the answers. Don't be fooled. They're in your notes. This will be the quiz. I hope you do well. <laughs> See, part of the understanding with this polytheistic God idea is that there are these gods, not just of the winter and the spring and the wind and the wheat and the rain and the, all the thunder and all those things, but that gods were territorial, that different countries had different gods, and, and that was their jurisdiction. And what Nebuchadnezzar is basically saying here is, listen, your God, this Elohim that you were named after, your God is fine in Israel, but you live in Babylon, and your God does not have jurisdiction in Babylon. So we're going to give you one of our gods. His name is Bel. And you see how, uh, how this plays out. We'll fast forward real quick to chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. There's something different. So they're given these names to try to change their identity, to try to, to uh, indoctrinate them and transform them into Babylonian leaders. All right, now the story. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which was probably also the second year of this three-year indoctrination that these guys were involved in, Nebuchadnezzar has some dreams, and they're bothersome dreams, and he can't sleep, and he doesn't know what they mean. So he calls in all of the astrologers, all of the soothsayers, all of the magicians, all of the wise men and magi. Hmm, it's not even December. He calls in all these wise men and magi, and he says, I have a story problem for you. Some of you loved story problems. Some of you hated story problems. He said, here's the story problem. There's a story, and I've got a problem. I don't know what it means, so interpret these dreams for me. And the guy says, fine, tell us the story. He says, that's part of the problem. I don't know if he couldn't remember them. He says, you tell me what I dreamed, and you tell me what it means. They're like, we, we can't do that. And he says, you better do it or you will die. I will kill you and turn your houses into rubble. That's your challenge. And we can't do it. No one can do this. He said, fine, kill all the wise men and take out the farm league while you're at it because Daniel and his boys weren't part of this group yet, but they're the understudies in this three-year program. So the king sends one of his men 
to kill these guys. And he comes to Daniel and basically says, hey, Dan, I'm here to kill you. And Daniel, the Bible says, I love this, Daniel, it says he spoke with wisdom and with tact. And he looks at this guy and says, ixnay the ilinke. You know, let's hold off on that. And he is persuasive enough that the guy decides not to kill him yet, and he gets a chance. They give us a, give us a chance. So he goes to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He goes to these guys, and he explains the situation. Verse 18. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. Not just a God whose jurisdiction is the geographical region of Israel. Not a God whose jurisdiction is Babylon. But the God who transcends, who doesn't get borders, who doesn't say, you can't keep me out of anywhere. The God of heaven, he says, I urge you, plead with the God of heaven for mercy concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So they go to pray. Here's the interesting thing. You see a pattern here. Two weeks ago, Pastor Kip was teaching us about Nehemiah. What did Nehemiah do? He prayed first. Prayed for four months, and he worked for two months. Last week, we looked at Esther. What did she do? She prayed first. She prayed for three days, prayed and fasted her and everybody, and then she acted. Here we see it again. These guys are getting ready. What do they do? They pray first before they try to figure anything out. And that night, as they pray, God answers their prayer. Verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Daniel saw the dream. It was very clear. It's about this big statue with all these layers, gold and silver and bronze and iron and then clay mixed with iron and that. And if you've ever heard the phrase, uh, feet of clay, comes from that. And he tells, tells this, this dream to, the, to Nebuchadnezzar, to the king, and, and he says, that this wasn't from me. Now, here's what's interesting. After God answers his prayer, he turns around and his prayer of praise and thanksgiving is amazing. Keep in mind, at this point, best case scenario, he's maybe 17 years old. High school junior, high school senior, with this kind of depth of insight, with this spiritual maturity, with this understanding about God, this is what he prays. Verse 20, and he said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Like, you can try to eradicate God's name. You can change our names that point to the name of God, but it doesn't matter what you do. You can scratch it out of whatever books or whatever records you want or whatever names, but the name of our God will be praised forever and ever. It doesn't matter what you try to do with that because wisdom and power are from him. Keep in mind, he's being schooled by the wisest people, the smartest people, the most knowledgeable people, the most learned people, the most schooled people on the planet. And they know about astronomy and astrology and science and nature and architecture and math and literature. All of these people, they're getting the best education everybody. He says, but wisdom is from God. And he's working under the most powerful man on the planet. Nebuchadnezzar is by far the most powerful man living that day. He says, but power is from God. And then he says this. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. You know, Tuesday's a big day for us. This coming Tuesday is the vernal equinox. I see you're not nearly as excited about it as I am. It's when the sun crosses the celestial equator. It's when there's a, the, the daytime and the nighttime are of equal. And from that point on, it's the first day of spring. And days get longer and longer, longer than the night. If a downward swing into, into summer on June 21st, it's a beautiful day, the, the, the vernal equinox. Yes. Yeah. Got to school you guys. 
In their understanding, it's when the winter God tapped out and the spring God came in, and then the spring God would tap out and the summer God would come, and then the rain God would come, and then the harvest God. He says, no, 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 we know the God who does all the times and seasons. He's not just for the winter. He's not just for the spring. He's over all that, and not just in nature either. The seasons of life, the political seasons, the seasons of kings. And Daniel knows that Nebuchadnezzar has only been king for two years, and God has ordained all things. He sees the sovereign hand of God at work, and it's a little bit prophetic because over the rest of his life, Daniel would serve under King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar, King Darius, and King Cyrus. And not only that, but this omnipotent God, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells within him. Daniel gets it. He didn't come up with his dream on his own. This isn't because he has some deep ability to discern things. He knows this came from God. In fact, when he told Nebuchadnezzar, he said, no one could do what you asked. Not even I could do that. But the God of heaven can do that. And so he gets to the end of this, and he says, I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. See that? You can take me out of Israel. You can destroy the temple. You can take me away from my family. I know my heritage. I know who our God is. I know who my father's God was and my grandfather's God and my whole lineage. I know who I am, and we give praise and thanks to that God. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. The depth of the prayer of thanks and praise that this 17-year-old boy prays is incredible. His understanding of God, his commitment, his humility, and he prays him. So he goes into Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him the dream and he gives him the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says, it's amazing. He says, it's not me, it was this God of heaven. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar lavishes on him these gifts and gives him a promotion high up in Babylon. 17 years old. And one of his new responsibilities is that now he is in charge of all of the wise men. And could it be that if Daniel was in charge of all of the wise men, that he would have a say in what was the curriculum that these wise men would be studying? And if he had a say in it, could it be that he would want them to be schooled in the Torah, in the Pentateuch? And if that was the case, could it have been that he pointed out to them in Numbers 24 that there would be a star that would come from Jacob, that it would point to a Messiah? And could it be that this core curriculum that he puts together becomes the common core curriculum for the next hundreds of years? And 600 years later, when a wise man sees a star from the east, he goes back to Daniel said in, 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 in Numbers 24 that there would be a Messiah. And it could it be that all that is because he was exalted and could it be that I'm so far down a rabbit trail it has nothing to do with the sermon but it's really cool and interesting, isn't it not? <laughs> so Daniel's promoted and he's over charge of all the wise men. And then we're going to fast forward because later Nebuchadnezzar, full of himself, decides to have his own Academy Awards. But there's only one Oscar. It's a 90-foot one and it looks a little bit like him. And when he opens the envelope, the winner is, well, how about that, himself. And he has everybody bow down to this 90-foot golden statue. Everyone does, that is, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Some of you are familiar with that, with that story. And they're in there. And there's a fourth man walking with them who has a resemblance of the son of the gods. Hmm. 
Could that be Jesus? Another sermon, another day. So then it goes on. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. This is the dream about the tree, and it gets chopped down. Daniel tells him about it. It leads into a very difficult season for Nebuchadnezzar, but he can't say that he wasn't warned because he was. After that, he dies. Belshazzar becomes the new king. Belshazzar, in the course of things, has this big banquet, drinking a little too much wine, says, hey, you remember those sacred vessels we took from Jerusalem? Bring them out. Let's use them for our party. Bad idea. These were sacred, set apart, holy to God. He's using them for his purposes. As he's drinking, as he's having a party, the handwriting on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, parsin, basically says, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. He dies. Darius becomes king. As Darius now becomes king, Daniel, it says, shows this extraordinary ability in life. And he is promoted, and he's getting ready to be promoted to number two in all of Babylon. And some of the other administrators aren't really happy about this. Maybe it's because they have more seniority. They've been around longer. They feel like they got passed over for this job. Maybe it's because Daniel is a foreigner, and they think there ought to be someone that's from Babylon that has this. It doesn't matter. They're very upset, and they want to somehow nail Daniel. Now we've jumped to chapter 6, verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. Now, would that ever happen in our day? <laughs> Who would try to find something on some politician of some of their affairs? I mean, come on. This is so archaic. No one would think to do something like this in our day. They're saying, here, let's find something, something, some dirt. Let's find some garbage. Let, let's dig up some, some issues on him. Let's, let's find maybe a server that he erased some emails on that shouldn't have been on there. Let's, let's find a porn star that maybe he had a little attrist with. Or let, let's find some records that show that he used military planes for his own pleasure and it cost taxpayers millions of dollars. Let's find something. But they were unable to do so. Listen, if there was any garbage to find on Daniel, they would have found it. But they were unable to do so. They could not find corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. See, sometimes a politician might live a scandalous life. Daniel lived a scandal-less life. There was nothing. And, and, and hear me out on this. I, am, I, I stand before you as the, the one who needs grace more than anybody. I'm so thankful for the grace of God. I'm so thankful for forgiveness. I'm so thankful for second chances. I'm so thankful. So often we talk about and we point out, and it's true, how God has redeemed that which has, you know, fallen, and, and people that were unworthy, and God forgave and used them, and Moses murdered a man, and God used him, and, that's, and, it's, and it really is amazing, the grace of God. And, and David had an adulterous affair, and then he covered it up, and they had her husband Uriah killed, and, and yet God redeemed him and used it, and that's true. And Samson, his life was a mess, but God still used him. And Peter denied Christ, and God still used him. That's all true. And I'm so grateful for that. But it's kind of refreshing, isn't it? To see a life that God used not in spite of him. And that the grace wasn't just for forgiveness. But the grace of God lived him, allowed him to live a life of integrity and conviction. And Daniel lives this way. Let me also point this out. That when he was about 15 years old, Daniel was taken from his parents and most likely never saw them again. 
And no one would ever tell his parents anything he did. And he was brought into a culture where it was expected, where it was encouraged, where it was required that he would go against his convictions, go against the things he was taught, go against God's word, go against God's will. It would be celebrated if he would. Even as a young boy, as a young man, And I just want to say to our middle school students and our high school students and our college students, every day you are immersed in a culture that not only encourages but celebrates you to go away from the ways of God, to go against your convictions, to go against what God would have for you. And I just pray that we would have some that would be Daniels in our world today. Daniels that would say it's the grace of God that will not only forgive me, it's the grace of God that will allow me to stand on the convictions of the word of God. That we would have young men and women who would say, I'm a Daniel in this school. I'm a Daniel in this world. I'm a Daniel in my family, in my home. And for some of you who maybe aren't students, say, well, I'm glad that doesn't apply to me. Listen, some of you may work for a boss who's the most obnoxious, ungodly boss there could be, works for a company that it's all kinds of garbage. And so there's a tendency for you to say, you know what? I don't have to give my best. I can slack a little bit. I can just kind of coast by. May I remind you that Daniel worked for a man who was completely ungodly in a world that didn't even acknowledge God, and he was elevated and he was promoted because of his diligence, because of his excellence, because of his integrity. It wasn't because he was trying to be so favorable with Nebuchadnezzar. It's because he was working as unto the Lord, as it says in scripture. And we, of all people, ought to live a life like a Daniel, that we excel wherever we work. That we would have men and women who are Daniels who say, I will do the best that I can, and I will work with integrity, and I will do my very best, because I work for the Lord. So they could not find any garbage on this man, Daniel. And then they realized there's only one way. There's only one way. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Unless it has something to do with the law of his God. We've watched him. We know him. We've observed him. We've searched everything. There's no garbage on him. But he is so committed to this God and his law and the scripture that he has in his prayer. If we can do something with that. So they put together a plan. Oh, King Darius, you're the greatest. In fact, we think for the next 30 days, you ought to put out a decree that no one prays to anybody or any God except for you. And in fact, if anyone is caught praying to any other person or any other God except for you, they ought to be thrown in the lion's den. And just to make this thing really serious, we ought to put this in the law of the Medes and the Persians. I referred to this last week, which cannot be annulled. Darius, full of himself, says, great idea. Let's do. And he did. And Daniel finds out about this. Chapter 6, verse 10 is an amazing verse in the book of Daniel. And I want us to camp on it for just a minute. It says this. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published... He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Follow this. Daniel just found out, if you pray to anyone except Darius for the next 30 days, you will be killed. And Daniel says, I best pray about this. And not to Darius. I love it. He says, I'm praying first. And what we see here is that it appears 
He has a place that he regularly goes to meet with God. He has this spot upstairs in his, in his, in his room with a window that looks out towards Jerusalem. And he goes there. And not only that, but he has arranged the rhythm of his day in his life that there are set times that he set apart specifically for this purpose. And not only that, but as he goes up to this place where he prays, he gets down on his knees, which is an external demonstration of an internal attitude of humility before his God. And he prays and he gives thanks. This is not some obligation that he does. This is not some obstinate, I really don't want to because I'm mad at you, God, because this and that, and I, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to anyway because it's right. And he has a heart of humility before God and gratitude, and he thanks God even though his life has not turned out the way that he had planned. Knowing all the while that this very act may cost him his very life. And he does this just as he had done before. What, like last week? Well, yeah, maybe. But maybe every day of every week for a long time. See, here's the interesting thing. For some of us raised in church, hearing the Daniel and the Lion's Den story, in our imaginations, in the little movie in our life, in our flannel graph, we may have pictured him as a fairly young man, 20-some years old. Again, most scholars would believe that at this point in Daniel's life, he's in his 80s. That this has been at least 65 years that he's been in captivity. And maybe every day, three times a day, for 65 years, he's had this life of prayer where he humbles himself and he prays and he thanks God. From the time he was a teenager, 15 years old, till the time he's an octogenarian, Daniel has this prayer and he prays first and he prays continually all throughout. He continues to pray. Even when the circumstance is, is horrible, even when the situation isn't great, even when some of the prayers don't get answered, he continues to pray. And because of this habit, these guys see his life, and they tell on him. They turn him in. Didn't we have this? And wasn't set in Medes and Persians? Yes. Anyone praised anybody? Yes, that's right. Daniel has prayed. And Darius is gripped. Frustration. He doesn't want to kill Daniel. Daniel's going to be his number two guy. Quiz. Quiz. It's 15 minutes later. Quiz. Daniel was given a name. What was that name? Good. And what does that name mean? Bell protects his life. Now here's what's interesting. For 65 years, he's been called, Bell will protect your life. Bell will protect your life. Bell will protect your life. Our God, Bell will protect your life. Look at this. Darius comes to him. So the king gave orders, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually, rescue you. In other words, for 65 years, we've been telling you, Bell protects your life. We know Bell. <laughs> Don't call on him now. <laughs> Bell's good for crossing the street or riding your bike without a helmet. He'll protect you in those, and he doesn't do good with lions. <laughs> Bell's no good to you now. I know we've told you that for 65 years. Don't call on Bell now. 
your God, whatever that Elohim thing, whatever your God is that you've been serving for 60 some years, even when it was illegal, why don't you call on him and see if maybe he will save you? And he does. And he does. It's an amazing thing. How is it? How is it that Daniel, for those 65 years, from his teenage years all the way as an octogenarian, how is it that he can remain faithful to his God? How is it that he can remain faithful to God's word? How is it he can remain faithful in prayer all of those years? Well, maybe we'll get a hint. One more thing. Chapter 9. Chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel. Quiz number two. Follow me on this one. Last night, they really struggled with this. What was Daniel's name? Daniel. Yeah. Last night, they just couldn't get it. What was Daniel's name? It's like, what color was Washington's white horse? I mean, I'm giving you the answer in the question. His name was Daniel, and he says, for 65 years you've been calling me Belteshazzar. I, Daniel, God is my judge. You know what allowed him to remain faithful all those years? What allowed him to remain consistent in his walk with God and in his scripture and in prayer? Daniel never forgot who he was. I am Daniel. I am from Judah, I am of the people of Israel, and God is our God, and God is my judge. And I know this God who is the God of heaven, and I know this God who is the God of my fathers, and I know who I am. I am part of his people. It says, I, Daniel, it says, I, Daniel, understood from the scripture, from the word of God, according to the words of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. You're going to be in timeout for 70 years. God had spoken this to Jeremiah. Jeremiah had written a letter. He had distributed amongst the exiles in Babylon. Some of you are familiar with part of that letter. Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Daniel knew very well that letter. He knew it by heart. He had known it for 65, coming up on 70 years. And so his response to that, as the 70 years is coming to a close, he says, I, Daniel, I prayed, and according to the scriptures the Lord had given Jeremiah, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting. We looked at this briefly last week. And in sackcloth and ashes. I humbled myself. I denied myself. I came before the Lord God. And it's amazing. His attitude in prayer and how he prays, it's amazing how he prayed as a 17-year-old. It's amazing how he prays as an 82-year-old. Praise this, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God. None of these Babylonian gods. The Lord my God, and I confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome. None of these seasonal rain cloud gods of the Babylonians, they don't work. My God is great, and he's awesome. 
and he keeps, like he's a faithful God, he's trustworthy, he keeps his covenants, he's, he's a committed God, he keeps his covenants of love, he is a loving God. I know my God. My God is great and he's awesome and he is over all of this. And he is faithful and he is trustworthy, he is good for his word. And he is committed and he is loving. And loving with all who love him and obey his commands. In all of this, Daniel never forgets who he was or who God is. That God is the great almighty God, not relegated to some jurisdiction in a geographical location, but a God of heaven who is great and awesome. And he never forgets that. As he prays, he gets down to the end of that prayer in verse 18. He says, give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. You see that attitude? He doesn't come demanding anything from God. He doesn't come saying, God, we deserve this because look at what we put up with. God, we deserve it because look how, how good of a life I've lived. He, he never has this idea of entitlement. He understands God owes him nothing. In fact, if you read that in chapter 9, you'll see that he says, we understand the reason we're in Babylon is because we were unfaithful. It's because we turned away from your word. It's because we wouldn't listen to your prophets. It's because we were rebellious. It's because we went our own way. We get that. We come to you begging and pleading, not because of anything we've done, but because of who you are. Because you are a God of mercy. And see, this is why I love this man, Daniel. Why his example is such an inspiration for us. Such an example to us. That for him, prayer was not just some formula to somehow find the code that can be cracked in the heaven safe so that somehow we can get blessings and prosperity and everything we want and need. What you see with Daniel in his life of prayer, it went beyond what he prayed for it was who he prayed to. See, prayer, and we can understand this, prayer is not the end in itself. We think, well, prayer's the end. As long as I pray, I just check that off my list and I move on. That's not the end. Prayer is a means to an end. And the end is not just, can I open up that safe? Can I get God to pry his fingers off some blessings and get some poured out on me? That's the secondary thing. Prayer is the means to the end of a relationship with a God of heaven who is loving, all-powerful, committed, and trustworthy. Remember in week one, I brought up this whole thing when Randy had asked, to what end? It's this whole emphasis. And we saw the answer in Ephesians chapter one, where it says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, just like Daniel had, so that you may know him better. That's why we pray first. More than anything else, that we would have a deeper, richer understanding of who our God is, a more real relationship, a more engaged worship, a more secure trust because we know him better. Here's the interesting thing about Daniel and answers to prayer. Some of the prayers he prayed got answered, some of them overnight. But the deepest burden of his heart, the heaviest prayer request that he brought back again and again, 
It's kind of like the beaver at Ten Mile Creek. He kept gnawing on that prayer request for 70 years. And God answered it. But Daniel never got to see the answer. Daniel never got to go back to Jerusalem. Daniel didn't get to see the new temple, didn't get to see the walls reconstructed. But he prayed not just to get answers. He prayed because of this relationship that he had with this God. And that's what I want for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a song that, that really illustrates this, of our identity, that, that we're not slaves to fear, but we're the children, we're the sons and daughters of this gracious, loving Heavenly Father.